From the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, this is All About Grants. Hello, and welcome to another edition of All About Grants. I'm your host, Megan Columbus, Acting Director of Communications and Outreach in NIH's Office of Extramural Research. Today we'll be discussing NIH's new and early stage investigator policies. I have with me Dr. Wally Schaefer, who I'd like to welcome to the show today. Hello. Hi, Megan. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. Wally Schaefer is Senior Scientific Advisor for Extramural Research for NIH. He's also been associated with NIH career development and training for many years. Wally, I know that NIH has had a long-standing interest in new investigators. Can you tell us a little bit about historical policies around them and our support of them? Sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. You know, I've been at the NIH for a long time, but this, these policies really predate me. They, the first new investigator award was started in 1977 for the same reason that we have new investigator policies right now. There was concern about the declining entry of new investigators into the NIH portfolio of principal investigators. And so the NIH in 1977 started this new investigator research award commonly referred to as the NIRA. And it was a three-year award for $35,000 per year. And by 1988, the NIH figured out that that wasn't enough for people to get started. A lot of the folks that were getting those awards weren't going on to subsequent research. In other words, they weren't staying in our system. So in 1998, the NIH abandoned the NIRA award and started the first award, FIRST. And the first award was much larger. It was $250,000 a year for five years. And the, um, the NIH stuck with that. It seemed to be working until about 10 years later in 1998. They again looked at it and felt that it wasn't enough money and it wasn't launching careers. And some of those investigators weren't proceeding on to the traditional NIH research grant at R01. And so they did away with the first award as well. They did away with the first award, that's right. And they replaced it with a checkbox on the face page of our grant applications. You may remember that. So new investigators would identify themselves when they came in, and we actually gave them certain incentives. In other, in other words, we looked at them very carefully at the review in the review process and also at the time of funding. But there were some problems with that particular policy, and one of them was that uh, investigators frequently misidentified themselves as new investigators. There were type 1 and type 2 errors. In other words, people got it wrong in both directions. And in about 2004, it was decided that we would start identifying uh, new investigators based on whether they've appeared as a recipient of a substantial competing research grant in our system. And so we used software, uh, a software approach and we also stopped, narrowed the kinds of uh, research grants that would, where we would uh, offer those types of advantages to make sure that people had a, a long enough period of support initially, as well as enough money in order to get their careers going and to come back with something after their uh, initial award. And so we just limited it to R01s. And 
Then we noticed that the age of the investigators, the period of training, was increasing, so we started this new policy called ESIs, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. And so the ESI policy, that early stage investigator policy that you referred mm-hmm. to as ESI, you're saying that new investigators were becoming new investigators later and later in life? Yeah, so what we found out was that the age at which somebody got their first award was gradually increasing, and it was increasing at about 0.2 years per year. For a long period of time, that whole you know, population of new investigators was becoming older and older. And there was concern about that. Uh, you know, the people have frequently pointed to greater rates of innovation, had younger ages, and so forth. And there was concern that the advancement to independence being delayed as it was might inhibit some of that. So we developed the early stage investigator policy that would allow us to recognize people that were a little bit younger. And it's really not about age per se, but it's about the duration of training leading up to independence. What we found was that the age at which people received their terminal research degree had been fairly stable for maybe a decade at about 32 years of age or about seven years after the baccalaureate, people would receive their PhD. So what we did was we also determined that most of the increase in the average age was due to longer periods of postdoctoral training. And so the early stage investigator policy is really directed at trying to reduce that period of postdoctoral training, to put incentives in so that principal investigators will move along and institutions will find them a little more attractive and will hire them into faculty positions at at an earlier rate. So the ESI policy, how does that relate to the new investigator policy? Does the new investigator policy still stand? ESIs are a particular type of new investigator. In other words, we look at early stage investigators, people that haven't It's part of the new investigator pool. In other words, they haven't had a substantial grant from the NIH previously, and they're also within 10 years of their terminal research degree or within 10 years of finishing their medical residency. But we still have a new investigator pool that doesn't fit the ESIs. That's correct. And do they they still get special consideration? And we still include those in some of our targets, and we provide special considerations. So in other words, yeah, the incentives apply to new investigators, and then the incentives are as follows. Right now, we identify applications from new investigators at the time they come in the door, and then we tend to cluster them at the review meetings and so that reviewers can determine which applications from new investigators are most meritorious. Oftentimes, new investigators will have an application that has less preliminary data than somebody who's been experienced and has been working in the field and has grant support in the past. And the reviewers are given instructions in terms of what they should expect from the new investigators? That's correct. They they would expect less preliminary data. They would be able to look uh, more carefully at the training and their productivity during the training periods of their careers, which may be in different projects that may not be as closely related to the project that's proposed in their application. So they judge them accordingly. And 
it allows us and it allows the reviewers to pick those applications that are the most promising from those new investigators and then they score them. And then the second part of that has to do with the incentives that the, the, the institutes and centers provide at the time of selecting applications for funding. In other words, they'll look at the scores, but right now our policy is such that the NIH or the Office of the Director directs each of the institutes and centers to try to equalize the success rate for new investigators, the pool of applications from new investigators with the pool of applications from experienced investigators submitting their, submitting new proposals, in other words, type 1 applications. So, and by equilibrating that success rate, we've uh, determined that we can approximate certain numerical targets that provide a flux rate of new investigators into the pool of funded principal investigators that is just about appropriate. And that ensures the pipeline continues. Right. In terms of setting some numerical targets and success rate targets, we started that, I think, in 2004. And you, you, if you look at the data that's displayed on our website, you can see that the number and the proportion of new investigators has gone up. In 2009, we had the highest rate of new investigators entering our system as recipients of R01s and the highest proportion that we've had in more than 20 years. So the difference in terms of the benefits that a new investigator versus a new investigator who's also an early stage investigator, are the targets different? Well, the targets are the same. In other words, we have targets, numerical targets for new investigators, and then we specify that at least half of that new investigator pool needs to be within the early stage of their career. So within 10 years of their terminal research degree or 10 years of finishing their medical residency. And I should point out, I know you haven't asked this, but I should point out that we make allowances for lapses in people's careers in terms of the early stage policy. In other words, if people have had to take time off of research for family care or they've been ill or they have a disability or they've had extended periods of clinical training like a um, specialty or subspecialty fellowship, or they've been in the military and had a military obligation, we will extend that 10-year period to accommodate those kinds of things. Great. For more information on how to request an extension, visit grants.nih.gov and search ESI Extension. So we're back with Dr. Wally Schaefer talking about early-stage investigator policies. Wally, you certainly talked a lot about the policy and the history of the policy. How would somebody identify themselves as a new investigator? They do this when they create their Collins profile. In other words, in order to be a principal investigator on any grant at the NIH, you have to create a Collins profile. And so the Commons is NIH's electronic interface with our applicant community. That's right. And the signing official or some other official at the institution will you know, set up an account and allow people to register in the Commons. Okay, and the Commons, I believe, can be found at era.nih.gov for those who aren't familiar with it. Okay, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> Within the Commons pages, there are there is a place uh, for 
there is a page on which you can enter you, the date of your last terminal degree. And also on that page, there is software that calculates and goes back and determines whether or not you've had a substantive NIH grant in the past and will display on that page whether you're a new investigator or not. And so that's within the personal profile of the investigator. That's, that's exactly the right. So on that page, almost in real time, you can determine whether or not you're a new investigator. It'll be displayed there. Or with, and once you enter the date, it'll calculate a window for your eligibility as an early stage investigator, and that's usually 10 years from the completion of your terminal research degree or 10 years from the completion of your medical residency. And so what should someone do if they put in their information and the system does not correctly identify them? They should get in touch with the help desk. Okay, and that would be the ERA Commons help desk. That's correct. And we'll provide some contact information for that at the end of the show. That's right. And most of the time that works. Occasionally it doesn't work. Or if people have questions, the help desk will be able to help them with that. You had said uh, in the earlier segment that we have provisions that allow for extensions for uh, people who have had to take time off for various reasons. How would somebody go about requesting one of those extensions? Okay. So if there is the need for an extension, you can go on to the new and early stage investigator website and it's clearly marked, there's a little box on that page that indicates how you would request an extension. It creates an email to the NIH and it allows you to indicate the parameters that the, a small committee will need to look at in order to grant that extension and it allows you to describe situations that may have resulted in a lapse in your research training or a lapse in your research career, you know, associated with family care responsibilities, illness, disability, and other factors. And I understand that many of those are approved. Many are approved. I think about three-quarters of them are approved. That's good news. Are there special opportunities for new investigators that you might recommend that people look at? Well, in addition to being identified as a new investigator and getting the incentives for um, uh, the receipt of an R01 grant that new investigators and early stage investigators uh, enjoy, there are also some other programs that uh, new investigators might want to look at. For example, there's the new Director's New Innovator Award, uh, which is a special award that only new investigators can apply for. And there's also the Pathway to Independence Award, which is Combined Career Award Research Grant. Uh, so in other words, somebody who is in the terminal age stages of their postdoc career can apply for a K99R00. And the K99 part will support the final years of their postdoctoral experience. And the R00 part will be a transition to a health help with the transition to an independent position. So it sounds like there's lots to explore for the new that, investigators. That's right. And most of this stuff, as I've indicated before, is on the new and early stage investigators website. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming with us today. That wraps up today's edition of All About Grants. I'd like to thank Dr. Wally Schaefer for joining us today. Tune in next time for NIH and OER. I'm Megan Columbus. To contact the ERA Commons Help Desk, please visit itservicedesk.nih.gov forward slash ERA.
once again, that's I-T-S-E-R-V-I-C-E-D-E-S-K dot N-I-H dot gov forward slash E-R-E.